I debated uh, hearing from Ernie and then saying uh, that'll be our service this morning, but I do want to, this is kind of part two of the same text, and uh, I think it's good for us to have them connected together, so I think as the situation goes, I'd, I'd prefer it to go this way if that's okay. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 7 through 16, and as I, I just uh, alluded to, we actually began this uh, uh, dis- uh, discussion on this text last week, so hopefully you were able to be here, or if not, you were able to uh, look up the message if you have so interest in that. It's on our website, uh, but it, we're not going to be able to cover. We're going to kind of jump in halfway through, so there's some things that we have to, uh, if you weren't here, that may, unfortunately, maybe kind of left out. Uh, uh, maybe you can go back and uh, pick it up later yet, too, if you'd like to, but uh, let's read the text together this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. We're going to go through verse 16. Paul writes this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us. Thank you that it is, uh, reveals to us uh, who you are, what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, who we are, and the role that we have when we are found in Christ. We love that your word declares to us the truth of the gospel, the freedom we experience in it, and uh, the hope for eternity that we have because of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection. Jesus, thank you so much. We love that. But now, as we continue to look at your word together as a body, we recognize that you are continually bringing some things in front of us that I think you want us to pay attention to. So, Lord, would you just speak to us this morning? We surrender to you that you might be glorified in all things certainly in our own individual lives, in our families, and in this church here. In Jesus' name, amen. As I did last week, I titled my message, uh, Grace to Grow. That is the overall thrust of, of where, we're in this, uh, where we're at in this section, is that Paul is saying that God has given us some grace, and that grace that he's given to us, the intention of that grace is that we would grow, that we would, uh, we would not stay where we were in our walk with Christ, but that we would grow in Jesus Christ. I just want to throw up a little uh, reminder from last week. The one thing I want to bring into, because uh, we actually stopped like right in the middle of a sentence. I don't know if you noticed that last week. We stopped right in the middle of a sentence, which is actually not that hard to do when you're reading Paul's text because he writes really long sentences. So unless you're willing to be here for a really long time, 
which you are sometimes, but unless you're willing to be here for a really long time, then you, uh, you kind of have to stop in the middle sometimes. But last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus in his grace, when he ascended as the conquering hero, when he ascended back into heaven, he was like a general who had captured, uh, had taken captive the enemy and who had released some captives from the enemy and had taken spoil from the enemy. And when he went up into heaven, he gave those gifts. He, he led those captives in triumphant uh, return, so to speak. Uh, that's us, by the way. We are the captives. We are the ones who were, who were released from captivity, from Satan, from our sins. And he gave gifts to us. And when he did that, he framed it this way, Paul did. He said those gifts, he, he gave leaders to have specific things in mind, specific things that drive them. That's where we have that list there. The apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. He gave those gifts to the, uh, what we focused on last week, to the leaders of the body of Christ so that they could equip those in the body for the work of ministry. And when that's happening, I'm leading up to this screen right here. When that's happening, this is the result. This is where we ended up last week, so I want to just bring that back up. When that's happening, then the body of Christ is built up. Then we see this thing called maturity. We grow into a fully formed man, Paul says. And we're going to see why I use that word here in just a little bit. But we grow into a fully formed man. And remember, he's not talking, I mean, he is of course talking about us as individuals. He has to be because there's no other way to talk about it. You can't, you can't say things are true up in this big level here without recognizing that the individual pieces have to be true. But he is primarily talking about us as a body. Like the, the body of Christ, those who follow Jesus and are, uh, the, the, the make up the body of Christ, that they grow into the full man, mature manhood. And in fact, he says, we really are looking for, God is really looking for us to grow, and he uses this phrase, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a, there's a couple of sort of uh, phrases tacked onto it, but the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in other words, he's kind of saying, when you think of how full Christ is, how much Christ has in him, and you try to uh, see how high or how, or how much that measures, and you measure that, whatever you come up with, that's his goal for us as his church. Now, I say this I've pretty frequently, so I think you, you kind of know this answer, and you probably knew it before I had to tell you across the pulpit, but uh, how, what, what, what kind of measure are we talking about? Like, like how high or how big or how great is this thing that we are being measured up against? Is this, is this something we're going to wrap up next week? <laughs> is this something you've already wrapped up? No, Paul, who wrote these words, who was, from most of our perspectives, one of the incredible examples we have of people who gave their life fully for Jesus Christ, he said, I have not yet arrived. I'm not there yet. Brothers, I want to tell you, I have not achieved this goal yet, but I strain forward. I keep my eye on the prize. I don't look back. I strain ahead to what God has for me. There's a bit of my paraphrase of Philippians. When this is happening, I want to get to this because these are my, again, we have two main points today, two main verses I want to bring out. The first one is the followers after this because he says the result of a church being built up and maturity happening and us beginning to, to say, here's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ and we are supposed to be growing in this. The result of that is, is that we may no longer be children. That we may no longer be children. Now, I want you to be clear about something this morning. Jesus 
is not against children. God is not against children. That was made abundantly clear in the Gospels when Jesus walked on the earth and the disciples wanted to shield him from these little children that were running around and wasting his time. He is not against children by any stretch. of. In fact, he said, you have to become like them to get in the kingdom, right? You have to enter the kingdom as a child. So be it understood, please, that we're not saying that it's bad to be a child. We are saying, Paul is saying, that it is bad to stay a child. Now, we all understand this, right? We love when babies are born. We have them born in our church all the time, thank the Lord. We love when babies are born, right? You're saying, yes, Esther, because you love to hold them. But none of us would be really happy if our babies stayed babies. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a person sitting at the table uh, with us at the reception, and they were concerned. They have two children. They're expecting number three. Uh, and they were concerned because their second child uh, is, uh, I don't know exactly, uh, almost, two years, almost two years old now. And he, is, uh, he doesn't eat very much. And they've tried all kinds of things to get him to eat things. He hasn't gained a whole lot of weight. I mean, he's, I, mean I don't remember the exact numbers, but he is seriously skinny. What did you say? 20 pounds. And they're worried. They've been to the hospital. They're like, they're trying to, like, because they expect him to grow, right? We expect our children to grow. We expect them to change from babies to infants to toddlers to uh, children to, uh, well, I don't know what all the categories are anymore. Preteen, in between, teener, tween, teenager, all those. But we expect them to keep going, right? And we also expect their behaviors to change as they grow, right? Hey, I'm glad when dads are honest about this. Um, I, mean, let's, let, I mean, let's just be clear here, adults. Does the growing stop when we hit 21? Or 30? Or 40? Surely by 50? You see, we can make jokes, and it's okay. I mean, it's good to, it's, we're, we're, we're together with family this morning. It's okay. But the reality is the entire text is driving us to the fact that God gave us grace through Jesus Christ. He equipped us with some things, and he wants us to do the work of the ministry so that we would no longer be children. We would no longer be children. He, he characterizes this childlike behavior by putting these words, which gives it a lot more application to us as adults in the church world, doesn't it? He said, when you are children, you are tossed to and fro by the waves. Picture helpless boat in the middle of the water. No way to find any power to move in any direction. At the mercy of the waves, at the whim of how the wind pushes. He says, you're carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now there he's going to put some skin to it, right? Because he's not talking about, he's saying there's doctrine, there's, there's things we believe and there's things we, we, we carry out. He says there's human cunning, there's human, there's craftiness. Now he's not painting this in a very good light, is he? He's not saying, he's not saying, all, uh, he's, he's helping us to see the grim picture that when we are children, when the church is full of children, then we are in this place where we are constantly pushed back and forth by what 
Well, maybe by what is sort of the modern thing that, to do, by what other churches are doing, by what common sense evangelicalism says we should do, or maybe it's, because it can go that direction too, right? Maybe it's by what we've always done. Maybe it's by what our cultural tradition says we should do. Because those also can be winds of doctrine, right? He says when we remain children, then we are susceptible to those kinds of things that pull us here and there. And of course he's saying that's not what we want. Now this is a subject Paul spends a lot of time with. I'm just going to give us two examples this morning because, well, time wouldn't permit us for more. I mean, we could take the time, but I won't take the time. There's two examples. One is when he's meeting with the Ephesian elders on his way back to Jerusalem, on his way to subsequent captivity, by the way. But he meets with the Ephesian elders, and we can't read the entire section. I'd love to go back and read Acts chapter 20 some point, at some point. But I'm just going to start in verse 28. Because as he's, and he's saying goodbye to them, and they all know it. Because the end of the text here says that they're weeping and they're hugging him. And they don't want to let go of him because they know it's the last time they're going to see him in person. But he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, it's God's church, he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, and I'm reading these last verses for a reason because they fit in with the text for today and last week put together. And now he says, I commend you to God and, his wor and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see the common thread you know, Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, it's the same kinds of things that he had already been saying to them, right? Same people reading the letter that heard him say those words on that shore in Miletus that day. Pay careful attention, but notice what he says here. I want you to see this. He says, I know that when I depart, you will have fierce wolves that will come in among you. You will have fierce wolves that will be on the outside and they will come in among you. That may not be such a big surprise to us that there's pressures from the outside seeking to undermine what the church is doing and the, the goal the church has and for the people of the church to be no longer children. But notice what he says after that. He says, also from among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things seeking to draw people away after them. You see, there's a dual threat, right? It's not just focus out there because there's fierce wolves and we're going to protect ourselves because there's fierce wolves out there that are want to, wanting us to no longer be children or want us to keep us as children or maybe not as want us to be children at all even. They want us to not even be believers. But he says, there are people rising from within. You can't just look out that way. You have to say, if we remain as children, if we don't grow into maturity, if we don't do what God is asking his church to do, then we are equally susceptible to people from the inside who rise up and say twisted things, drawing people after them. And we all know it, right? If you're an adult and you've watched the church, you've been in the church at all, you know the sad story after sad story after sad story of churches falling apart and splintering and being divided because of these things. Paul wrote these words to the Colossians when he 
wrote to them. He says, I want you to know, beginning of chapter 2, how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. I want you to grow. It's the same kind of thing. But he goes on uh, to this. He says, uh, let me see where I'm supposed to start reading. Verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you, may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And listen to these words. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's a child. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, or the Lord, that's a child, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ." We could go on about this, but the point of the message is not to make you aware that there's a problem. I think you probably all know that there's a problem, that there's pressures from outside and from inside seeking to take the church in all kinds of directions except for truly following what the God asks us, according to his scripture, to be faithful to Jesus, our master, to be obedient, to follow the very voice of the Holy Spirit in everything he asks of us. How do we fight against that? How do we combat that? How do we say that's not what I want or what we want for this church body. Well, the answer comes with what he's talking to us about in this text. The answer comes is when we recognize that Jesus, in his grace when he ascended, he gave gifts to the church, and those gifts came by according to the grace that he gave to us. He decides who gets what and how much they get of what and who's where and what they do. He decides all those things, but the point of the grace is that we would grow, that we would no longer stay children, but he says, rather, that when we speak the truth in love, we'd grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, I want you to see this, this final statement here, verses 15 and 16. Uh, there's really kind of like three things that happen all at once. First of all, he's making a contrast you notice he makes a contrast here. He just talked about being children and being tossed to and fro and being moved by every wind, every doctrine, all, the, all, this, all this stuff, sort of this instability. And he says, I, instead, I want you to see that when you speak the truth in love, that you grow up in every way into him who is the head. There's stability there. There's a, there's a foundation there. There's, there's something that ties you and holds you there. So he's making a contrast. He's also, at the same time, making kind of a summary statement about what the entire text has been about. He's restating what he's been talking about the entire time, that this is what the body does. I also think we ought to see that he continues, as Paul always does, he continues as he's reminding and, and sort of summarizing, he continues to throw new things in to the mix and say, let me just say one more thing about this or how this works or what it's, what it's like to help, help you understand what I'm trying to say. So here we have this phrase, and it's an incredibly powerful phrase. It's a phrase that I think as church people we should have memorized, and not just so we know the words, but have it imprinted inside of us. This phrase I'm, I'm referring to is speaking the truth in love. Now, I want to make a couple of comments about that phrase, and I will show you the Greek if you can read that there. You don't have to know necessarily what the Greek words there are, but it's alefuo, which is the word for truth, and agape, which is in love, in agape love. But I want you to notice a few things about this. They're actually, the phrase here is speaking the truth in love. But there's actually not any specific um, impetus in the words. There's no specific verb about speaking. That word alethior simply means to be true. 
Now, it's not wrong to talk about it in a speaking context because it comes out of her mouth. It ought to. But primarily, or maybe more broadly, it's not just about saying things that are true. It's about being true. If you were here last week when we began our, our Sunday school quarter on, uh, on uh, making disciples, uh, you, I, I talked about salt and light. And it's that kind of picture that should be in our heads right now. It's about being true. The best example I can give you about what Paul is trying to, to kind of capture with this, this phrase is light. Light by its very nature exposes what is dark. That's just what it does. That's just what it does. And when there's truth in us, by its very nature, truth exposes the lie. It's what it does. It doesn't have any other options. You, you, it, it does. If truth is not exposing a lie, then the truth isn't actually there. Now, that could be a little difficult for us to swallow, by the way, as good church people who've gone to church and we know the Bible. But if it's not exposing lies, it's somehow being, it, well, it's kind of like a light that's put under a bushel. That's the phrase Jesus used. And no longer allowed to shine. Now, please hear me. I've had a few conversations with different ones of you after last week, and, and, and I'm not, there's nothing, uh, after Sunday school even, and, and the sermon too, but I, I'm, I'm not saying there's not room for us to say things. I, it's, it's accurately translated that you speak the truth in love. But I want us to make sure that we step back and actually broaden that and not narrow it to speaking, because I think sometimes, can I be honest with you? I think sometimes that gives us our way out where we can say things that we declare as the truth and they're actually kind of hurtful things because we're supposed to speak the truth. No, no, we are supposed to be true. We are supposed to be true. And the only way we have that is when Jesus Christ is in us, right? Because he is the truth. That's why the truth sets us free. When the truth is here, it sets us free. But we're supposed to be that in love because truth will always expose the lie. And when truth is exposing a lie, especially in the context of a church, then that gets a little dicey because it steps on people's toes because it's revealing the places where they have not yet surrendered to the truth or have not acknowledged the truth, aren't willing to walk in the truth. That's why it comes shaded in love. Now, I think John picked up on this. In his first letter, he says that we should not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He connected those things together, truth and love. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John is recorded that when we are this way with each other, when, when there's truth in us, but we do so in love, he said that's actually how people know who we are. Now, we use this phrase all the time, but I want you to see it in the context of today's message. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another, or have love for one another. That is spoken clearly in the context where Jesus expects us to be true disciples, Right? Clearly, it's meant to come in the exact same phrase or exact same context that Paul is saying here, that we are to be true and it's to come in love. It's when what I am, am displaying by my life and it begins to step on your toes as it ought to because it's revealing where you're not willing to walk in that truth that I do it in love. And by the way, it goes both directions. I should have maybe you started with the other one so you don't feel like I'm up here telling you those. It goes both directions because I can assure you, I know this because I know many of you, there are pieces in your lives where the truth is on display and it steps on my toes because I haven't submitted to that yet. That's really, that's honest to goodness truth from you. You need to hear that from your pastor. I'm not perfect. 
I don't live my life fully surrendered to Jesus every moment. So there's times when I see you respond in certain ways and I go, ooh, because I know just last week I didn't do that. It helps a lot when there's a lot of humility and grace on your side of things so that it helps me to say, I'm not just gonna give up, but I'm going to walk in the same way that you are. And again, this goes both ways. We have to keep moving. G uh, Paul here uses some more together with words that I have been excited to share with you. I know you're always excited to learn more Greek words. Actually, one of those you've actually already heard before because in chapter two, verse 21, he used the same word. He says that the whole body, when this happens, when we're speaking the truth in love and you're growing up into Christ who's the head, let's, let's keep, we're gonna try to tie this all up to yet today. If we grow up into Christ who's the head, then we are joined and held together. It's those two words. Those are both together with words. Soon, armalogeho means to be joined closely or closely joined together with each other. Again, he used it back in chapter two, verse 21, when he used that exact phrase, that we, the, the body of Christ, the people of the body of Christ, we are joined closely together. And then he takes it a step further because the next word is even more direct. He says, we are, when he says we are held together by every joint, held together is the word sumbibadzo, which is kind of a fun word to say, but it means this, to be driven together. To be driven together. Remember he used this phrase, uh, uh, we, we showed this a couple weeks ago, that we have this bond of peace that we we're supposed to maintain. This unity, this bond of peace. And he used the phrase for change, like, like we are chained together. He's gonna return to that idea with this word. We should see ourselves pressed, driven together. I tell you, church, I'm telling you, there's so many times these words come out of the text and we begin to realize it, and we begin to see how that simply is not the position of our hearts so many times. Do you see yourself driven closely together with the people that you attend church with every Sunday? Now, I know for some it comes a lot easier because, oh, you like them, you hang out with them otherwise, they kind of think like you. And that makes it pretty easy to go talk to them every Sunday and be close friends with them. But I want you to think of the entire church body. Do you see yourself driven together with all of those who come to this church on Sunday mornings or any moment? I tell you it's the exact point of this text. When Paul says, but grace was given to each of you, he by that very word, that very phrase means that when that grace is given, I showed this last week, we don't all think alike or see things alike or practice things alike. We are not all in the same place in our journey and we are not all in our same place in our submission to Jesus Christ. And that can make things difficult in seeing ourselves driven together with each other, which is why Paul keeps using these together words over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, if I can take that one step further, the point of this text is that the very grace that has given us a variation, we're going to get to this in a little bit, that has given us a variation of how we look at things and how we respond to things and what we think is most important and where we're at, that very, those very differences are in fact the mechanisms by which we are going to grow. Did you hear that? Hey, I got one amen out of that. 
You know, we often think that we would probably grow the best if we were hanging out with people that are just like us and think just like us, because then we'd have all this, maybe unity would be no problem, and we, we would just grow by leaps and bounds. And I'm telling you, according to the text, and not just this text, I'm telling you that is categorically false. What's the phrase you like to use, Chris? I think it comes from Proverbs. Iron sharpens iron. And we often think that, yeah, that's when we, you know, when we kind of test each other. And it can be that too. But I want you to see that Paul's point of this text is that the grace that God has given to us, which results in us being different from each other, is in fact the grace given so that we can grow. That's, the, that's how we grow. So let's just try to put some things together here. Well... I'm going to skip these next couple of verses because I want to get to this last part. you have to ask me about it later if you want to see these things. Because I want to make this final point that Paul is making, I think, that we have to see, is that this kind of thing happens when each part, and he's, he's, he's implied it already. He's already alluded to this, but he just comes out directly and says it, so I think we need to pay some attention to it. That when each part is working properly... When the body is put together and is driven together, it's held by every joint, by every part that it's been equipped with, when that happens and each part is working properly, then that's what makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly. This is not a definitive list by any means, but I spent some time this week um, just thinking about what does it mean to say that each part has to be working properly? And um, we could teach an entire message, or actually we could teach an entire series of messages. I've actually done this in the past, but entire series of messages on the different gifts within the church and how they act. That's, that's not where we're going to go this morning. We won't have time. We don't, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm simply interested in us thinking about if this is true, if God in his grace has given us all different gifts that give us different ways of looking at life and different things, ways to respond to things and different places we're at as, we, as we're walking this journey with Jesus, and those differences, while they may cause us to struggle sometimes in, in feeling like we're, we're step in step with, with each other because we don't see things exactly the same way, those, act, those differences actually are meant to give us the ability to grow and mature and do what we're supposed to do, which is to grow up into the head who is Jesus Christ. What does that take then, or what does it mean for each part to be working properly? So I just put together, I think it's about five things. I put a, a little verse with each one of them, and I just, we're going to run through this here. Uh, for each part to work properly, this is, uh, this is we got to start here because this is the most important one. For each part to work properly requires that that part or each part be connected to Jesus. You all have a part to play in the body of Christ, but for each part to work properly requires you to be connected to Jesus. John 15.5 is actually a verse that we happen to look at in our Sunday school room this morning. Does anybody know John 15.5 from memory or at least pretty closely? Yeah, yeah. Somebody said it. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Uh, let me just read it for you because he says a lot of the same things in a couple verses, right? So never sure exactly where you're at. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Got that part right? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Anybody know the last phrase? Yeah. It's probably uh, our least favorite part of that phrase, right? For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if that's true, if Jesus spoke the truth there, and I hope if you're sitting in church on Sunday morning, 
that you will say Jesus spoke the truth. If Jesus spoke the truth in there, that it must be true that for each part to do its job properly requires each part to be connected to Jesus. Otherwise, we can do nothing. That seems to me like one of those moments where it's worth stopping for a little bit because it seems to me like one of those moments where we all know it and we all say, yeah, yeah, we heard this. It seems to be a moment where we have to stop and, and, and actually say, do I believe that to be true? Maybe more importantly, does my life model that to be true? That apart from Jesus, I, can, that I have no chance of fulfilling my part within the body of Christ unless I'm connected to the vine, unless I'm connected to Jesus. No chance. I might be able to figure out in my head nice things to do or good things to do. I might even be able to do things that the church asked me to do. And I might be able to do them fairly well and get a lot of praise and pats on the back from people. But for me to truly fill my part that God has in fact in his grace gifted me with, I must be connected to the vine. I must be connected to the head. Just like in our bodies, everything runs back to here, right? Everything's controlled up here. That's how it is in the church. Everything runs back to Jesus and is controlled by him. Let's dig a little deeper. For each part to work properly, this one seems pretty obvious, but I think it should be said. It requires each part to realize they have a part. Maybe sometimes we are caught sitting somewhere thinking, I don't have a part to play in this. And I'd like to tell you this morning that's not true, at least according to Scripture. I'm going to bounce over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 now and just read a couple of verses. Verses 4 to 7, he says, there are, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each... What were those words I just said? Can you repeat them? To each. So who's each? Who does that include? What does that mean? To some, is that what it said? To most, to a select few. To each, which is to say all, right? Except to individually, to each individual, to all individually. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you believe that this morning, church? I hope you do. Otherwise, we don't have a chance of fulfilling this passage where Paul says, in Jesus' grace, he has given the leadership of the church to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, and they equip the, 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 those in the church, the saints, to do the work of the ministry so that the whole body might be built up and become a mature person and may no longer be a child tossed back and forth, but may in fact grow up into the head who is Jesus Christ. We have no chance of fulfilling that if you don't believe that you have a part to play. Simple as that. Just kind of going on from that, for each part to work properly requires that each part see themselves as a distinct and necessary smaller part of the whole. This is simply just an extension of what I just told you, but it is an extension of it. It is one thing for you to know that you have a part. It is another thing for you to see that I have a part that is a small part of the whole. I didn't say unimportant part. In fact, I, that's why I put the words necessary up there. Not unimportant, but a small part of the whole. And I have to see myself fit in there. I have to recognize that 
all the parts are different. Paul does this beautifully by looking at our own bodies. Again, let me just jump over. Let me, if you'll permit me to read these verses to you yet this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just jumping down a little bit later in the, in the chapter there. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Let me interrupt myself before I keep going. I want you to pay attention. I'm not gonna have time to point it out. I want you to pay attention that even in this text I'm gonna read, there are lots of lessons we can learn from it. Not just one, it's not just this. It's a whole lot of lessons about how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves fitting in the whole. But it is all about that. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less, any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And he goes on. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require." But God has also composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, church, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Again, I'm going to stop because we're not going to get into individual giftings necessarily. It's not the point of the message. I want you to know that you have a part and you are a part of a whole. You're not the only part. You are a part, but you're not the only part. Let me, let's just keep on going. For each part to work properly it requires each part. Listen. Again, kind of implied, but I think it should just be said. If the part is going to work properly, what does that mean? It means the part has to be actually using their gift. You actually have to do what God has enabled you to do. You, it's not, it's, we all know this, right? It's not enough to intellectually recognize, yeah, I have, I have a gift. Jesus gave me something I could do. And yeah, I see myself fitting into the whole church, but maybe next year I'll start using it. Maybe when I'm 25. Maybe when I know more. Maybe when I've taken care of a few things in my life. For each part to work properly, it requires that each part actually use their gift. This time I'm going to go to the parallel passage in Romans and read uh, very similar sounding things, but I'm going to, uh, I like it because of exactly what it says. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Boy, if we could get a hold of that, that's so good. Though many, we are one body in Christ and individually individually members one of another. Let's get rid of this American idea that we are such individuals, we can do what we want. It's nobody has any say on what happens to us. Let's get rid of that garbage. It's not what the Bible teaches. Let me keep reading. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes on with enlisting, but I'm actually gonna stop there because I like where he ends. Having gifts, let me just read it again for you. Having gifts that differ According to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. One more. One more step we have to do. 
For each part to work properly, it requires each part to do their part with the express purpose of serving the other parts to the glory of God. Again, it's not just enough to know that you have a part to play or that you see yourself as one part among many or that you begin to use your part. It's that you understand that I'm using my gift to serve others within the body and bring glory to God. That's why I have it. It's not to make me look good. It's not to put me in the forefront. It's not so the people go, oh, wow, look at what he can do. It's so that I can serve others. Now, let me, I should just read you the text because I told you the verses attached to each one. Peter picks up on this one. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, after all, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I've said this a few times in individual conversations. I don't know if I've said it across the pulpit, so I'm just going to make sure you hear things like this. We often have this mistaken idea that we as individuals will grow when other people are exercising their gifts that affect us. And I want to be clear, you do have some growth. I hope so. I hope that when I come up here and preach and use the gift that God has given me, that there's growth in your life. I hope there's things that you glean from that and things you, I hope that's true. But I will tell you unequivocally from the scriptures we read today and from my own experience, if you want to grow in Christ, the way to do that is for you to use your gift to serve others. That's when it happens. Sure, there's growth that happens when other people use their gifts on you. No question. But primarily, your growth happens when you allow God to do what only God's Spirit wants to do through you, what God's Spirit wants to do through you. When that happens, you grow. It's why I've talked to numbers of you after talking you into finally into teaching Sunday school maybe sometime in your life, and you come to me afterwards and you say, I learned more from that lesson than any other lesson I've ever been part of. And I know why. It's because you allowed God to use you to dig in and study, and it came out of you. And when it comes out of us, sorry, when it comes out of us, then we learn. Then we grow. And when you have a church filled with people using their gifts to serve each other to the glory of God, and they're all growing, that is the picture that I read to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. Obviously, as always with Scripture, we are now faced with a question, right? Is that going to change anything that I do? Or am I willing to simply sit here week after week? And hope that that'll be enough that when Jesus returns, I'll have said, hey, I went to church and I was a, I was a believer. I want to be clear. I think scripture is clear that when you've professed faith in Christ, you will be saved. That's why Paul talks about some being saved but barely saved. They're children. You're saved. I'm not, I, don't want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to disqualify that. But I will not shrink away from the fact that that's not what Jesus wants for you. And I will also not shrink away. And I, th I think about this. I think about this. You may say, well, you're the preacher. You know all kinds. I think about this. What a travesty. What a tragedy if I arrive someday at the feet of Jesus Christ and in a moment 
revelation, a blink of an eye, I realized all the things I could have done for him, yielded to him fully and gotten rid of all the other junk in my life and given my entire focus to him. Because I know at that day I will realize I could have given more. But when I realized what a tragedy, how sad it will be for me to realize how much more I could have given my Savior. For he gave everything for me. And I said, ah, that doesn't make me comfortable. Ah, I'm not ready for that. Ah, I don't, somebody else can do that. I want to be transparent and honest with you. I think this is a two-way street. This is a two-way problem. I think we struggle mightily with people sitting in pews and saying, that's all I want to do. I want to hear messages. I hope they speak clearly to me. I want to hear worship that I feeds my soul. I want to go home feeling good, and that's all I want to do. And I think that that is not growing in Christ like you should be. But I also think on the two-way street, I think we struggle mightily with leaders in the church who think they're supposed to be the ones doing the work of the ministry and not allowing or asking or expecting others to do stuff. You see, I step on my own toes just like I step on your toes, don't I? Because I have a lot of practice. Like, this is my job. This is what I do. And I love it. So I'm really good at it, right? I know how to do it. I know how to, I'll just take care of it. It's a lot easier. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it growing in Christ as it ought to be. So if you would be willing to make a little deal with me, and I'm going to speak on behalf of our leadership team. So leadership team, if you don't like this, you can yell at me afterwards or say you quit or something. I don't know. But let's make a little deal. If we, as leaders of this church, make a concerted effort at allowing the work of ministry to be done by the saints within the church, are you willing to step up and do that work? And again, I want to be careful. A lot of that's already happening. It's not like, it's not like we're in this place where nothing's being done except by us. Please don't, please don't think that. That's why we have a Bible school list that gets filled with 100 and some volunteers and you all are here for a whole week, five days straight. I love it, but I'm sure we can grow. I'm sure we can grow. I'm gonna show you one more verse because it's a picture in the book of Hebrews of the result of us knowing the hope we have in Jesus Christ. When we know how we have access to the throne of grace through the living, new and living way that's been opened up through Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews says that we then consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lots of times we use this verse to justify why we should get together in church. Not a total mistake, by the way. I'm not, I'm not against that. But the impetus of this verse is actually the first phrase, that we should consider how we can stir up or provoke. That's the word, provoke. How we can goad, how we can provoke each other to love and good works. Thank you, Jesus, for your text this morning. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us, the gifts that you have distributed at your will, at your, at your uh, desire, to whom you will, how you will, in what capacity you will. And I pray, Father, that uh, for each one of us who are hearing this today, uh, that we have been thinking about this and we continue to think about uh, the role you have for us, what that may look like. Uh, it can be difficult. I'm going to speak from a leader side of things, uh, God, and just Recognize it can be difficult, both to let go and to think of where we can use people. Help me to see my own dispensability, my own 
uh, how can I say this, my own unnecessarily, unnecessity, that's not a word, God, but you understand, what, that, that I'm not that necessary, so that I might see how necessary some other people are. I thank you for the beautiful picture that Paul paints, but God, to be honest, it's a picture that leaves us wanting. Leaves, us in, leaves me in a place where we say, oh God, pour your grace out on us and help us to, to grow in this even here. I love what you're doing here in this church. I love what you have done in this church. I love pastoring this body of believers, God. You have given me a group of people to lead and to, and to, and to teach week in and week out who are hungry for your ways, who want to follow you, who want, and, and it's such an incredible blessing to me, God. I cannot thank you enough for that. And yet, I'm left with the feeling that there's always ways that I can grow and that we can grow together. That we have not arrived yet to this place where we can say we have the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of Jesus himself. So we continue to look to you and ask you to guide us and lead us. To fill us with your Holy Spirit. Even if it's just one little thing but that you would tap us on the shoulders or on the brains and you would help us to see what role we play individually and how we can help each other and give us grace and love for each other as we walk this journey. Help us to do all things for the service of others, each other, and the glory of you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again this morning. I know we've run way past time. I appreciate your grace.